Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundagara people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This episode contains references to violent death, mental illness and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Michael Adams, and this is a special exclusive audio preview of my new non-fiction book, The Murder Squad, which is on sale from the 25th of July. First, a big thanks to everyone who bought or borrowed Hanging Ned Kelly. I really appreciate you taking the time to read the unlovely story of Elijah Upjohn and the hangmen who caused havoc in Victoria in the 19th century. If you loved Hanging Ned Kelly, you're going to love The Murder Squad. The Murder Squad is, as you might have guessed, also a pretty grim story. It arose from some Forgotten Australia episodes, now archived, which I did a few years ago. These looked at various crimes that were committed and investigated during the Great Depression. I love the stories from that period so much that I decided to go back, do more research, uncover more tales and personalities, and present all of it in one volume as a phantasmagoric panorama of what I reckon was the most intriguing, dramatic and tragic period of 20th century Australian history. The Murder Squad will be available in paperback and as an e-book. It'll also be available unabridged as an audiobook, narrated by a very talented voice artist. But in the meantime, you're stuck with me. To whet your appetite, I thought I'd read you a few chapters of The Murder Squad which has an absolutely killer cover that you can see for yourself via the link in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening, thanks for supporting, thanks for reading, and a new episode of Forgotten Australia will be with you very soon. The Murder Squad by Michael Adams Author's Note The detectives look for all the world like tough cops from a Warner Brothers gangster film and they've just caught a murdering monster who might have slunk from the shadows in a universal horror flick. But this isn't the movies. It's real life. And now, with the bloodthirsty killer dubbed the Park Demon safely behind bars, the hard men of the murder squad are off to the pub. 
1933 street photograph on the cover of this book is not the sort of image we associate with Australia during the Great Depression. Instead, this period conjures other tragedies and triumphs. Unemployed men on the bush track looking for work. Farlap thundering past the post to put pennies in the pockets of poor punters. Families by the wireless listening to the first ever broadcast of the ABC. Don Bradman and his cricketers bravely facing the body line onslaught. The Sydney Harbour Bridge finished at great sacrifice, only for its opening to be usurped by a slashing fascist crank. But what's forgotten about those dark times is that Sydney and New South Wales, Australia's biggest city and biggest state by population, also suffered a succession of horrific killings that beggared belief and shocked the entire nation. These mysteries and murders, concurrent with rampant unemployment, immense poverty and dislocation, and unprecedented political upheaval that engendered fear of a communist revolution and spawned the rise of the right-wing New Guard, were investigated by an elite group of detectives at a time when the police force in New South Wales was being transformed by changes in leadership, organisation, communication, technology and science. They were also working in a very different physical landscape. Sydney then had a population of 1.25 million. It has 5.25 million today. And then, even inner-city suburbs had pockets of scrub and vacant land while outer suburbs were dotted with farms and surrounded by bush. This book focuses on the worst years of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1934, and largely, but not exclusively, on investigations led by Detective Sergeant Thomas Walter McRae, the biggest man on the cover photograph. One case, known as the Pajama Girl, is still infamous, while the rest have fallen into obscurity even though the Bungendore Bones, the Moorbank Murders, the Park Demon, the Hammer Horror and the Human Glove Mysteries were very well known at the time. Some of their notoriety was due to the fiercely competitive tabloid newspapers. While they often had genuine scoops based on insider information, they just as regularly printed wild speculation or even outright fabrication turning up the pressure on police while also compromising accused people's right to a fair trial. Detective McRae would be celebrated by these newspapers as one of Australia's foremost murder experts as he rose to be chief of the New South Wales Homicide Squad. His evidence-gathering methods and those of his colleagues who made up the murder squads assembled to tackle challenging cases were seen as ingenious at a time when even science fiction writers wouldn't have dreamed of computer databases, surveillance cameras, DNA or GPS as crime-fighting tools. But McRae and his fellow officers also worked in a period when fists, batons and even revolvers were used with few or no consequences against ordinary citizens, locked-out coal miners, striking timber workers, marching communists and ranting fascists. With such brutalities committed in the open, and even in front of press cameras, what could cops get away with inside police stations when they were questioning men and the occasional woman whom they believed to be guilty of horrific murders? Though detectives denied such practices, defence solicitors and barristers regularly argued that their clients had been subjected to prolonged and unfair interrogations that resulted in voluntary statements. Threats and promises might be used, such as, if you're convicted of murder, you're going to hang, but if it was only manslaughter, 
you'll be out in a few years. Meanwhile, interviews with suspects could be reshaped into narratives. An answer of yes to the question, were you driving the car that night with Bill, might be presented in a statement as, I was driving the car that night with Bill. Such practices were pervasive. Yet accusations of frame-ups were also falsely made by desperate culprits who would say anything to avoid the death sentence. What happened? Who did what? Who's telling the truth? Where's the evidence? What can be proved? These are questions central to solving any murder. But we can also ask them in relation to how these homicide investigations were conducted. This book presents numerous cases where we have a chance to weigh the main evidence, assess the character of the accused, ponder the fairness of police testimony, consider the justness of punishments, and assess the effect of newspaper hysteria. There aren't always answers beyond reasonable doubt, even in cases where killers were found guilty and several murderers got away with their crimes, leaving fascinating, enduring mysteries. Detective Sergeant Thomas McRae's career is a fitting lens through which to examine this era, not only because he worked on so many major crimes, but also because his own fate would ultimately hinge on how these questions were answered. In 1886, the year of McRae's birth, Friedrich Nietzsche published Beyond Good and Evil, Prelude to a Philosophy of the Future, which included lines that have often been applied to homicide detectives around the world, and they're certainly as fitting to the men of the murder squad. Quote, He who fights with monsters should be careful, lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. Prologue. The Pajama Girl. Saturday, 8th September, 1934. Cutting off the young woman's head would be the wrong move. Detective Sergeant Thomas Walter McRae knows this. For the past week, hundreds of people have flocked to the Aubrey Morgue to gaze at the girl in the ice bath to see if they recognize her. While she's a terrible sight, at least she's in one piece but her features are beginning to contort and she can't be kept on ice indefinitely. Thus, the suggestion to decapitate. But will ordinary citizens be able to handle a face staring out from a jar of formalin? Just last year, McRae put away a murderer where the vital evidence was the entire epidermis of the victim's right hand, preserved in just this way. Those floating spongy fingers were a revolting spectacle in court. Better, in this case, that potential witnesses not be confronted with a head in a jar. Better that they expect to look upon the face and full body of the woman now known as the Pajama Girl. Whoever she is, the newspapers have given her the allure of a fairy tale. The beauty lying in repose, awaiting someone to utter the magic words, her name, that will solve the mystery of her death and bring a killer to justice. It's true she'd been attractive in life. Creamy skin, blue eyes, fine features, fashionably bobbed hair dyed light brown and a small and slender figure. The image of her being killed in her yellow silk pyjamas is also haunting. For the police, all of this is good news. The greater the public interest, the greater the chance someone will come forward with information. But anyone expecting to gaze upon Sleeping Beauty 
is in for a shock. The girl was bludgeoned, leaving her with multiple skull fractures and a severe wound to the forehead. Her body was bent into a sack, dumped in a culvert on a country road, doused in kerosene and set ablaze. Only rain had prevented her corpse from being burned up entirely. Remarkably, the pyjama girl's facial features are intact. In the past week, millions have read about the case and seen an artist's impression of how she looked in life. The story is the biggest murder mystery in years, which is really saying something given what McRae has seen since the world slid into the Great Depression. Yet despite all the publicity, no one has identified her. That's why McRae has been sent to Albury. He's made his name solving headline cases where the victim's identity had to be established from bits of bone or flaps of skin. As good as he is, McRae doesn't work alone. Today, he's conferring with his frequent partner, Detective Sergeant Frank Len Ormond, and their chief at the CIB, Detective Inspector William Pryor. These colleagues and others form an elite group of investigators who regularly have their names and photos in the papers as they try to solve bloody murders and bring monsters to justice. These men have seen the New South Wales force evolve from the time when mounted constables still chase bushrangers to a modern organisation that uses cars and motorbikes, fingerprints and forensics, telephones, radio and even moving pictures. Individually, these detectives are minor celebrities. Together... They're the murder squad, and McRae, the chief of the homicide department, is first among equals. Now McRae's idea is that the pyjama girl be kept in one piece. Embalm her, and she'll be easier on the eye for witnesses, and she'll be preserved for as long as it takes for that crucial witness identification. McRae's recommendation is approved, and the delicate process is undertaken heralded in the newspapers as the first time in policing history that a murder victim has been mummified to solve a mystery. Soon, the pyjama girl will be moved to the University of Sydney and kept in a zinc-lined coffin filled with formalin, able to be hooked from the fluid whenever she needs to be shown to someone who might know her name. But what McRae can't know is that by preserving the pyjama girl, he's cementing in place one piece of the path that will lead to his professional and personal destruction. Chapter 1. From Strathalban to a Sydney Slaying Death could come at any moment. Tom McRae learned this as a 12-year-old lad in Strathalban, a Scottish settlement on the Angus River in South Australia, about 40 miles southeast of Adelaide. For the town's children, summer meant having a splash or catching some fish. Yet few could venture safely into water of any depth because most of the town's population, young and old alike, couldn't swim. On Friday the 9th of December 1898, Tom's eight-year-old brother Donald and a younger mate were crayfishing at King's Waterhole, where the water was 11 feet deep. Hauling in his net, Don overbalanced and fell in. His friend screamed and ran for help. A local man jumped into the water, grabbing Don as he went under again. But the rescuer couldn't swim either, and when the panicking boy thrashed, they both sank. The man let go and struggled to the surface. Another bloke dived into the depths and found Don at the bottom, trapped beneath rocks. He couldn't free him, but a third man succeeded and brought the boy to shore. This rescuer and a local doctor tried to resuscitate the lad, 
but Don was gone. Having received a full report, the coroner ruled there was no need for an inquest and released the body for burial. The tragedy cast a pall of gloom over Strathalban. The McRae's were a pioneering family in the district. Tom, his five siblings and other Presbyterian Sunday school children headed a long funeral procession to the cemetery and sang a hymn at Don's grave. A week later, a swimming association was formed in the town to teach children how to save themselves in such situations. Don's death surely had Tom asking big questions. How could God let this happen? Was everyone telling the truth? Had the little mate knocked or pushed his brother into the water, either accidentally or intentionally? Was the first rescuer to blame for not hanging on? Could anyone have saved Don? These were mysteries he could not solve, and without an inquest, no further answers would be forthcoming. In the decades ahead, Tom would ask similar questions as he stood over dozens and dozens of bodies, and the answers he found would inform the testimonies he gave on behalf of these dead at inquests and trials. But McRae would also ask himself the hard questions again in a personal capacity, over the mortal remains of two of his nearest and dearest. Tom McRae grew to stand half an inch shy of six feet. He was a sturdy 12 stone with blue eyes, brown hair and a fresh complexion. After finishing school, he became a bootmaker, as would his younger brother Archie. Outside of work, Tom was a sporting man, good at athletics and active in raising money for local charities. Around 1909, he moved 525 miles east to Yakandanda in northeastern Victoria. This put him in the orbit of Mildred House, five years his senior, whose family lived in nearby Albury. Tom and Mildred moved to Sydney and tied the knot in Paddington in February 1911. On their marriage certificate, he listed his residence as Victoria Barracks and his occupation as soldier. Early the following year, McRae signed up for the New South Wales Police instead and began his training at the Burke Street Academy in Redfern. Recruits got three weeks of instruction, including classroom studies and physical exercise. After their passing out parade, probationary constables started their real education under sergeants at city or country stations. McRae was posted to the little village of Cooma in the Snowy Mountains, gateway to the ski resorts and no hotbed of crime. The modest highlights of his first year included a local who poisoned himself with arsenic and the alleged theft of whiskey belonging to the railway commissioner. But beyond protecting life and property, McRae had his hands full because with no union to protect their interests, police were expected to work unlimited hours, seven days a week and without scheduled time off, and do it all on a minimal salary while paying their own expenses. Officers had an astonishing array of duties dumped on them by government departments. These included inspecting slaughterhouses, theatres and public halls, dairies and butter factories, fisheries and tobacco, acting as agents for the government savings bank, having charge of the electoral mining aliens and small debts registers, completing returns of jury lists and agricultural estimates, registering dogs and licensing motor car drivers, assisting pensioners with their inquiries, and keeping records of rations given to local Indigenous people. While city police might not be called on to fulfil each of these roles, country coppers could expect to do most of them and many others besides. 
If there was an upside to such overload, it was that it gave McRae a wide understanding of different people, places and processes. Good training for any aspiring detective. Constable McRae would have done his duties on foot, bicycle or horseback, or in a sulky. In 1912, the New South Wales Police had just one motor car, a single-seater roadster that was for the personal use of the all-powerful Inspector General up in Sydney. Communications were also primitive. It'd be another six years before the Cooma police station even had a telephone connection. When Tom McRae wasn't working, he and his wife Mildred were active in the Presbyterian Church and in community affairs. He was a skilled marksman, winning rifle shooting competitions for Cooma and entertained locals with his singing, performing with the Male Chorus Musical Society. When the Great War broke out in 1914, McRae's occupation meant he wasn't expected to enlist. But amid the patriotic fervour, 206 other New South Wales policemen did sign up. A quarter of them would never return. The depletion of the force so great that in August 1915, the new Inspector General, James Mitchell, banned further enlistment. A particular loss to the force's rank and file was Ted Larkin, a former Sydney police officer who, before enlisting, had become a member of the state parliament, where he'd advocated for a police association. The hopes of many coppers for better pay and conditions, and even the simple ability to request a transfer to a more amenable location, died with Larkin at Gallipoli. They wouldn't be revived until well after the war. In autumn 1916, the Inspector General transferred McRae from Cooma to Queanbeyan. Relocating 60 miles north over country roads was a hassle, but Tom and Mildred soon settled into their new home and again became active in church and community affairs. In what perhaps felt like an uncanny echo of his own childhood tragedy, soon after McRae took up his new post, toddlers Eric Lee and Percy Oldfield, both just two years old, wandered unseen from a house to a nearby river. Only Percy returned. A frantic search recovered Eric, his body still warm, but efforts to revive him were in vain. As the Queenbian Age and Queenbian Observer newspaper reported, quote, Constable McRae proceeded to the residence of Percy Oldfield with the intention of questioning the little fellow. His childish prattle was not altogether intelligible to others than his mother, but the constable understood the facts of the case from the tiny boy's own lips. Questioned by the officer thus, Where is Eric Lee? The child replied, Eric fell in the river and cried. The pathetic statement only too truly told its own tale. This time, there was an inquest, McRae giving the evidence that confirmed it had been a tragic accident. It had seemed reasonable to assume he sympathised deeply with the grieving family. At some point around this period, though the timing and circumstances aren't known, he and Mildred had their own sorrow when she became pregnant but lost the baby, either as a result of miscarriage or soon after the birth. Six months after relocating to Queenbeyan, McRae was bounced to Eden on the far south coast. There was a note of frustration in the wording of the ad he placed in a local newspaper to sell all his and Mildred's furniture and effects, right down to their 40 pot plants. Perhaps it was better to start afresh than haul everything 160 miles southeast. Eden could hardly have been further from the Great War, 
where McRae's brother Archie, having survived a gunshot wound at Gallipoli, was now serving on the Western Front. Yet McRae's first notable policing triumph in July 1917 was connected to the conflict. About 10 miles out to sea, the SS Cumberland became the first ship to fall victim to an enemy mine in Australian waters, the explosive laid by the German raider Wolf. Crippled, the ship beached at Gabo Island, where some cargo washed ashore and was pinched by a trio of local fishermen. With these plunderers based in Eden, McRae was on the case, despite Gabo officially being under Victorian jurisdiction. He motored out to the crime scene, where he got a confession from one crook that led to him and his mates being convicted and fined. Given the criminal spoils had included tins of preserved rabbit, it wasn't like McRae had caught Jack the Ripper, but his work did get him noticed by senior police in Sydney, and this included rising star William Billy Mackay, who noted that McRae was to be, quote, commended on the splendid manner in which he tackled the job. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Great War expanded the police's already onerous workload in New South Wales. In February 1916, 5,000 Australian soldiers protested conditions at their Kashula camp by commandeering trains and going on a drunken riot around Sydney, with the fallout being the introduction of early closing times for pubs and the start of the 6 o'clock swill. The task of ejecting rowdy drunks who refused to leave bars at closing and of charging publicans who kept serving illegally thereafter fell to the constabulary. More pressingly, the New South Wales force henceforth would have to tackle sly grog merchants, the most powerful of whom organised into violent gangs and presented tempting corruptions to officers. The state's police were also put to political uses, being arrayed against communists, unionists, peace activists and anti-conscriptionists. The most notorious instance of such suppression, offering a rare public glimpse into the force's by any means necessary mentality, was the September 1916 arrest on treason charges of a dozen members of the Industrial Workers of the World, an international labour union, with the cops allegedly using lying informants, planting evidence and concocting confessions. McRae got a taste of city policing when he was seconded to Sydney during the Great Strike of 1917, the bitterest conflict in Australian industrial history. The work of the constables was hard and hazardous, with men often on duty from four in the morning until midnight. There were also conflicting emotions for many police who wanted their own collective representation so they could negotiate better pay and conditions, and yet they found themselves protecting scabs, undermining the activities of unionists battling to protect their workplace rights. Wanting to ensure the loyalty of cops who'd been on these front lines, the Inspector General authorised a special allowance for all officers who did strike duty. McRae would get an extra three shillings for each day that he'd spent in Sydney, and an extra week of annual leave. 
Around this time, he was also promoted to Constable Second Class. But the Inspector General giveth, and the Inspector General taketh away. In April 1918, the McRae's were uprooted yet again, this time to Burrenjuk, some 240 miles to the northeast, in the Riverina district. The Twofold Bay Magnet newspaper reported that the locals had sent them off with all good wishes. Quote, Never had Eden had a more popular officer than Mac. McRae soon endeared himself to his new town. In July 1919, Burrenjuk, like most of Australia, was ravaged by the Spanish flu. When the local Kershaw family was hit particularly hard, with the father and a son dying and other members of the household seriously ill, McRae organised a charity drive to assist them. In January 1921, a new life for the couple beckoned in Sydney when McRae, by this time promoted to Constable First Class, was transferred to the number one station in Clarence Street. Given his new beat was now the big bad city, he'd be working in plain clothes and learning from the best. These included Detective Inspector William Pryor, the rising man of the CIB, and Detective Sergeant Billy Mackay, a fiercely proud Scot who had direct charge of Number One Station and who took an interest in officers of Caledonian heritage, like McRae. In the decade since McRae had joined the force, there had been many changes in Sydney policing. Most visible was a new dark blue military-style uniform worn with leather boots and a flat-top cap with a shiny nickel badge. Officers now carried leather batons filled with sand for extra socking power and revolvers or semi-automatic pistols, which they kept beneath their tunics in leather holsters. The force had appointed its first female police officers, Lillian Armfield and Maud Rhodes. More and more stations had electric lights and telephone connections. Cars, vans and motorbikes were increasingly used, and in the not-too-distant future, a few powerful cars would be equipped with wireless radios so patrols could receive real-time orders and speed to crime scenes. Yet, for the rank-and-file cops, the most significant change, spearheaded by Mackay, who picked up where the late Ted Larkin had left off, came in 1921 with the formation of the Police Association of New South Wales, which meant members had a body to represent their interests and defend them against arbitrary judgments from the higher-ups. This organisation quickly represented 80% of the 2,400 eligible officers. This was real progress, although it would be another five years before the police won a 44-hour working week that included a scheduled day off. McRae's city police work was more exciting and varied than it had been in the country. He came up against illegal abortionists, bigamists and burglars, jewel thieves and child molesters. But he also knew that making an arrest was no guarantee that justice would be served. In December 1921, he was one of the officers to collar a man for fatally fracturing another bloke's skull during a scuffle, only for the jury to acquit the accused of the charge of manslaughter and set him free. Such cases weren't uncommon. McRae's promotion and new posting meant that he and Mildred could now expect to remain in Sydney, and they lived in a house called Oakley in Keith Street in the beach suburb of Clovelly. Their settling down seemed complete in July 1921, when Mildred, who was now 41, fell pregnant again. 
their baby daughter was born two months premature on the 13th of February 1922 at the Royal Hospital for Women in Paddington. Tom and Mildred named her Joyce. Sadly, she lived just 10 days. Like Tom's little brother's death, it was unfair and unfathomable. Mildred was overwhelmed by grief, likely now believing she'd never have children. With bereavement leave for state employees still decades away, Tom McRae went straight back to his demanding workload. Frustrating cases abounded. In July 1922, McRae arrested a returned soldier who'd recklessly driven a bus and killed a music teacher crossing a street. But the judge ruled there wasn't enough evidence of negligence and directed the jury to return a verdict of not guilty. Then, in October 1922, a man was bashed to death in Centennial Park. McRae was one of the first on the scene, and he'd be part of the team to arrest Sylvester Patrick O'Reilly for this killing, although the Crown eventually dropped the case because there wasn't enough evidence to secure a murder conviction. For McRae and his colleagues, this had to be infuriating. They were privy to O'Reilly's sorry record. In the army, he'd been court-martialed and sentenced to 18 months for striking an officer, and he also had recent convictions for unprovoked violent assaults. The man clearly had form, but none of this would have been admissible evidence in the murder trial, and O'Reilly was out on the streets again. While it had been more than a year since Mildred and Tom had buried their daughter at Rookwood Cemetery, Mildred couldn't escape the depression that engulfed her. On Thursday, the 8th of March, 1923, she was found partially dressed in wet clothes on the rocks at Gordon's Bay, not far from the couple's home in Keys Street. Mildred was reported as having become deranged by grief. Where was McRae? What could he do? Had his wife tried to drown herself? Could she be calmed or committed to care? Newspaper articles provide no insight into what happened after Mildred was found in this distressed state. But the next morning, she went into her kitchen, turned on the oven's gas, and lay down to die. It wasn't reported whether McRae found her body. It's possible he did so upon arriving home from work. The coronial inquest concluded that Mildred had committed suicide. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Mrs. McRae had suffered from nervous attacks since the death of her only child 12 months ago. Yet, her despair might not only have been about her dead children. McRae would later admit that, while his wife was still alive, he had known a single woman who lived nearby. In 1923, after Mildred's death, and while he was on duty, McRae became lost with his lady friend in French's forest. How, why, and for how long they were lost wasn't revealed. But his police bosses took a dim view of the matter. McRae made a report about his absence and asked to be put back into uniform while an inquiry was carried out. This penance came with a pay cut because he no longer received the plainclothes allowance. No further disciplinary action was taken. But McRae was to say he spent two months in hospital after the incident his description suggesting he'd suffered a mental breakdown. By August 1924, McRae was back in action, running through the city streets, chasing two thieves he'd seen do a smash and grab at a jewellery store in George Street. He nabbed both perps in Hyde Park, but as he was walking them back to Number 1 station, one of the blokes escaped and took off. 
McRae didn't forget his face. The following month, patrolling on Elizabeth Street, he saw the fellow riding a tram. McRae jumped aboard and collared the crook. Such daring do saw him feature in the papers as a brave crime fighter. Another strange case from this time likely stuck in McRae's memory. In October 1925, 18-year-old Robert Audley, well-spoken, well-educated and from a well-to-do family, went missing in Sydney. His father believed someone had induced him to leave. While a missing person's notice appeared in the Police Gazette, it wasn't until the following April that the father appealed to the newspapers. They published Robert's photo and a tantalising update. Since the boy had disappeared, a small fortune had been left to him. Robert quickly resurfaced, revealed he'd run away to work in the bush and reunited with his dad. But this spoiled young man was soon in trouble again, this time for stealing a car. Yet no one could have imagined the ghastly death and destruction that Robert Audley would one day wreak in McRae's old beat of Cooma. In July 1926, McRae was back in plain clothes, investigating a series of jewellery robberies, the case culminating with him and his colleagues digging up loot the suspect had buried beneath his house. In November that year, McRae's keen observational skills saw him crack a smuggling syndicate that involved a disgraced police officer who'd been drummed out of the force. Teaming up with Billy Mackay, McRae set up a sting in which he and other officers hid in a premises while this crooked ex-copper stitched himself up with a lengthy confession. Smith's Weekly headlined its admiring article about this case, Sydney Constable's Curiosity Leads to the Downfall of Big Wharf Pillaging Gang. McRae used similar methods when a middle-aged creep and a young woman conspired to frame a businessman for rape the sting in the intended victim's house, allowing police to overhear one of the extortionists making demands. Surveillance, sex and sleaze. The newspapers lapped up the story, even if, frustratingly, the accused pair weaseled their way out of convictions. McRae's photo featured in the papers, an increasing occurrence as his profile grew. By October 1928, McRae was promoted to Detective Sergeant 3rd Class, He'd now work out of the CIB at Sydney's police headquarters and report to his new boss, Inspector Billy Mackay. McRae regularly investigated city killings. Mostly, they were spur-of-the-moment murders and manslaughters. In the space of a few weeks in early 1929, a boarding house feud between two old men led to a fatal stabbing, while a street fight led to yet another unintended death from a fractured skull. But then McRae was on the case of Vera Sterling, a macabre murder mystery like so many macabre murder mysteries to come, right as Sydney, New South Wales, Australia and the world began the descent into the darkness of the Great Depression. <laughs> ¶¶